Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I am your host, Evan Minton. Uh, I'm sorry that I've taken so long to get this podcast episode out this week. I've just been busy all week long, and I just haven't had a chance to record it. But, as they say, better late than never. And, first of all, quick shout-out to my patrons, patreon.com, David Parrish, Jordan Apodaca, uh, Kevin Walker, and Kevin Whitaker. You guys are awesome. Thank you for supporting Cerebral Faith Ministries. Uh, Because of your patronage, I was able to get uh, a huge textbook on science and faith uh, that BioLogos produced out. It's got five authors. Um, it's called Bit Robert. Uh, it's called Understanding Scientific Theories of Origins, Ge- Cosmology, Geology, and Biology in Christian Perspectives. And the authors are Robert C. Bishop, Larry L. Funk, Raymond J. Lewis, Stephen O. Moshier, and John H. Walton. And I was able to get that through your patronage, and also through eleven dollars that my friend Cat Abbas chipped in. So thank you guys for that. You are awesome. Today I'm going to be talking about one of the more one of the most powerful objections to the existence of God. It is very old. It's been around for gosh, I don't know how long. Even the biblical authors wrestled with it. And it is called the problem of evil. Everyone as pro- if you've talked to, if you've witnessed to atheists and you've asked them why they don't believe in God. The problem of evil, it, you're probably either going to get, oh, evolution disproves God, which, by the way, it doesn't. We've, I've had an episode on that, episode 11, with Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy. Evolution is not a threat to the Bible or Christian faith, but you'll sometimes get evolution. But other times you'll get the problem of evil. If God exists, why does evil also exist? If God is all-powerful... Why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? Why doesn't he stop little children from being raped? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he stop um, babies from being killed? Why didn't he stop Hitler from murdering, slaughtering six million innocent Jews? Certainly, God can do that because he's omnipotent, right? Why did so many people? Why did so many children die in mass school shootings? Where was God when all of that was happening? What about? What about when a mother loses her child to cancer? Why didn't God heal that child of the cancer? Why didn't God make it go away? God is all-powerful. He could do it, right? The Bible says that God is all-powerful. There's a plethora of Bible passages that says God can do all things. Jesus said in Matthew 19 that with God all things are possible. So why doesn't God stop that? And and God is all-loving, right? God is love. 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16... God loves the world. That that means John three sixteen. That means everyone. So if God is all loving and God is all good, he could certain he certainly would want to alleviate as much suffering as he as he could and to, and to stop evil and to stop all of the hardship that plagues this world. So why 
does he not do that? That is, that is the question. That is the question that atheists pose to Christians, and we, as responsible Christian apologists, need to have ready answers. And that is what I'm going to be talking about in this episode, answering that question. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil and suffering? Now, there are three versions of the problem of evil and suffering. Two of them are intellectual in nature, and one of them is emotional in nature. Of the, the two intellectual versions of the problem are, one, the logical version, and two, the probabilistic version. The logical version argues that the existence of God and evil are logically impossible. That is to say that if one exists, the other cannot. Uh, they're like the irresistible force and the immovable object. They can't both exist. If the, irre- ir- if if the irresistible force exists, then no, no object can exist that's immovable. But if there is an immovable object, then the irresistible force isn't really irresistible after all, because namely, there is one thing that can resist the irresistible force, namely the immovable object. So you could have an unmovable object or an irresistible force, but not both. Either one, neither of them could exist, or one of them could exist, but they can't both exist. That's the claim of the logical version. If God exists, evil cannot. If evil exists, God cannot. Now, the probabilistic version says, okay, it, it's, it's possible that they both, that God and evil could coexist, but nevertheless, it's really, really unlikely that God exists in spite of all the evil and suffering in the world. They could exist. They're they're not like the irresistible force and the immovable object, but it's very improbable that they do. Now, the third version of the the problem of evil is what I like to call the the emotional version of the problem of evil. This version says... It's basically... People who struggle with the emotional version of the problem of evil just may have a strong dislike of a god who would allow them or others to suffer. There's no real argument against the rational viability of theism. It's just God has allowed bad things to happen to me in my life, and I I hate him because of it. Uh, I I despise him. one example of this is, can be seen in the God's Not Dead movie, uh, in which Kevin Sorbo played the antagonist, Professor Radisson. And in his debate with uh, Josh Wheaton on the existence of God, uh, Josh, near the end of the debate, uh, was like a prosecutor going after Radisson saying, Why do you hate God? Why do you hate God? And eventually probably without even realizing it, Radisson uh, just blabs out, because he took everything from me. And Wheaton knew that Professor Radisson was wrestling with the emotional problem of evil because of a conversation, a private conversation that took place between those two earlier in the movie, in which Professor Radisson explained about how he, uh, how his mother came down with cancer when he was 12 years old, and he prayed for God to, to heal her, but his mother wasn't healed, and she died of the cancer. That, that, that's, a, that's a good, uh, fictitious example of the emotional problem of evil. 
And in this podcast episode, with the uh, 55 minutes I have remaining, I'm going to try to tackle these in a succinct and and sufficient way. Now, of course, um, there may be still be some questions. Entire books have been written on this issue. Alvin Plantinga wrote a book called God, Freedom, and Evil. Uh, Clay Jones most recently published a book um, about the problem of evil. So is Norman Geisler. I mean, so whole books can, has been written on this issue that take much longer than an hour, than an hour to go through. But I'm going to do my best. Now, first, let's tackle the uh, the logical version of the problem of evil. What we want to do is to begin to examine the logical version of the intellectual problem of evil. The key to this argument is the atheist claim that it is impossible that God and the suffering in the world coexist. So the claim is that the following statements cannot both be true. One, God is all-powerful and all-good. Two, suffering exists. However, this needs additional explanation. After all, there's nothing explicitly contradictory about the statements, God exists and suffering exists. It's not as explicitly contradictory as something like a square circle or a married bachelor. Atheists must think that there is an implicit contradiction between those two statements. The, the statement, God exists and suffering exists. And therefore, they are assuming some hidden premises which would serve to bring out this implicit contradiction and render it explicit. Now, what might those premises be? They seem to be two in number. Three, if God is all-powerful, then he can create any world that he wants. Four, if God is all-loving, then he would prefer a world without suffering. From these, it follows that God desires a world without evil and suffering and has the ability to create it. And so, from these, it follows that evil does not exist, in contradiction to statement number two. Since that kind of world does not exist, the atheist would argue, it follows that God does not exist. In any case, the atheist would say that from these two premises, it follows that the logical version of the problem of evil is true, and therefore atheism is true. Now, what is the problem with this argument? How should we Christians respond to this argument for atheism? Is it really as sound as it appears to be? Well, first of all, let's talk about what it, may, what it means to be, what it takes for an argument to be a good argument. For an argument to be successful in establishing the conclusion, all of the premises must be true. If even one of the premises is false, then the argument is fallacious. If even one of the premises in an argument is false, then you won't be able then you won't be able to reach the conclusion via that argument. Uh, just as you cannot cross from one side of a chasm to the other side if the bridge is missing a large piece. Moreover, in the case of the logical version of the problem of evil, all of the premises have to be necessarily true. If it's even possible that one of the premises is false, then the logical version of the, of the argument collapses. So let's examine these 
the premises of this argument. As a Christian, I don't ex I don't dispute the first claim. Obviously, God exists, and um, only a moral nihilist would dispute the, number two. Uh, evil exists, and and some would and some and also would uh, moral relativists. So we're we're going to grant one and two as true. So the the way to defeat the argument is going to be through either three or four or both. Is premise three true? I'm skeptical that it is. How do we know that God is able to create any kind of world that he desires? Now, okay, now, before, let, first let me just give what I think is the correct definition of omnipotence. When I say God is omnipotent, I mean that God is able to do anything that is logically possible. God cannot do the logically impossible. God can't do anything that that violates the laws of logic, like the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, the law of identity, and so on. Now, God can do things that don't violate the laws of logic, but may violate the laws of nature, um, if you want to go with Hume's definition of a miracle, that is. Um, he can create the universe out of nothing. He can raise people from the dead, make axe heads float in water. He can make a man survive in the belly of a whale for three days. He can make a donkey speak in a human language, and, and so on. But God cannot actualize logically incoherent states of affairs. God cannot create a square circle, a married bachelor, a one-ended stick, a shapeless physical object. God cannot make it true that both young earth creationism and theistic evolution are both true at the same time, in the same sense, and in the same way. God cannot make it true that Jesus died on the cross for all people and only for the elect. God cannot make it true that uh, he exists and he does not exist. He cannot actualize contradictory and incoherent states of affairs. This, now, this definition, some people have accused me of redefining omnipotence to get out of problems like the, the whole, oh, if, if God is... If God is all-powerful, can he create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it? And then when I define omnipotence and say, no, they say, oh, well, you're redefining omnipotence. No, I'm not. This is the definition of omnipotence that most contemporary theologians and Christian philosophers accept. And it's one that has been accepted for a long time, even back in the 1960s uh, or 1950s, whenever this particular book that I'm about to quote from uh, was written. C.S. Lewis said, and I quote, his omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. There is no limit to his power. If you choose to say God can give a creature free will, and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaning com meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them the two other words, God can. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things, but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives— not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense, even when we talk it about God, end quote. 
What Lewis is saying is essentially that God cannot create a square circle because the two words, square circle, don't actually refer to anything. They're just meaningless combinations of words. God just as well cannot create a squealabot polycop. A squealabot polycop is just a meaningless combination of letters and syllables. Square circle is a meaningless combination of words. These have no reference point. Now, with Lewis's reference to free will, th that brings me to my next point. It is possible that both that God both wanted to and actually did give man free will. Moreover, it is possible that in any world of free creatures that God could actualize, there would be at least some people who go wrong. It is logically possible that any world that God actualizes, some people would do evil and suffering to other people. In this case, premise 3 is not necessarily true. It may be the case that in any feasible world that God knows about in his middle knowledge, any world, any feasible world that God has available to him that he could create with any assortment of, of people in, living in different, different time periods. If you want to imagine people uh, in space and time being pieces on a, a chessboard, no matter which way God moves the pieces of the chessboard, um, it, it's going to result in someone at some point doing something bad. Even if God could actualize a world in which evil and suffering is absent for a time, it is possible that eventually it would be introduced. Someone would abuse their God-given free will at some point in any feasible world and introduce evil into the creation. And this, that, it is at least possible. You know, I, I made a meme, and I posted it in the Molinism Facebook group with... Uh, you know, Doctor Strange and Tony Stark talking about uh, all of the possible futures in which they, uh, of the coming conflict with Thanos. And uh, uh, Doctor Strange says, I saw, uh, what was it, like 15,605,000 different futures. Um, and Tony asks, and how many of them do we win? And Doctor Strange responds, one. Uh, well, that has become a popular meme um, with a lot of different captions, and I decided to make my own caption. And over Doctor Strange's head, it feels weird to, des to describe a meme, <laughs> um, uh, but over Doctor Strange's head it says God the Father. So Doctor Strange is representing God the Father. And over Tony Stark's head, I put God the Son. So Tony is speaking on behalf of the Son here. And God the Father says... I saw 15,605,000 different feasible worlds, and God the Son asks, And how many of them do our, uh, do our free creatures always do what is good? And the Father responds, None. Now that is at least logically possible. It is possible. We don't know whether or not a feasible world uh, in which everyone always does right all the time was available for God to actualize. Maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't. I don't have the mind of God, but it is at least possible. And if it's at least possible, then it is not necessarily true. The atheist, if since it's at least possible, the atheist cannot claim that the statement, if God is all-powerful, then he can create any world that he wants, is necessarily true. A world that God wants 
maybe a world in which human beings have free will and a world in which no one ever does anything evil. But God just can't actualize that world because some w- because in any world some would not freely choose to cooperate. <clears throat> now, uh, with response, uh, now with regards to the fourth premise premise. Uh, oh, by, uh, by the way, uh, the atheist may say, oh, well, in, in that case, if God can't create a world with free creatures that always do good, well, then just don't create free creatures at all. Create creatures uh, that are deterministic, that are programmed to always do good. Or God can create a world where he uh, pulls the strings like a grand puppet master. Problem solved. No evil. Just take free will out of the picture. Well, the problem with that is that I do think we have, I, th- I think free will is a reality for but I think that God has several good reasons for preferring a world where creatures are free than a world where creatures are meat robots. One of those reasons is that we know from Scripture that the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. That's the first greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments, love God with all of your being, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. As, as far as you go to take care of your needs, go that length to take care of your neighbor's needs. Two greatest commandments. Well, I would submit to you that love, true, genuine love, would not be possible if free will did not exist. Imagine that it's the year 3000 and robotics have been perfected to the point where androids look, sound, smell, and behave exactly like real flesh-and-blood human beings. Let's say that you're really socially awkward and you cannot talk to women, kind of like Raj from the, the Big Bang Theory sitcom, which ended recently. Um, so, so instead of uh, talking to real women, you go down to Robo Depot to get yourself a wife. Now, because she's an android, you can program her to be any way you want her to be. Uh, you pick out the one that is the most physically attractive to you, and you say to the guy running the shop, "Hey, I want this one." And and so he said, uh, the guy running the robot shop says, "Okay, uh, what do you want to give this?" Uh, how do you want her to behave? What do you want her likes and dislikes to be? What do you want her to, to, to do for you? Uh, I, I can program any... Per- she's a blank slate. I can I can make her any way you like. I can give her a great sense of humor. I can make her uh, love everything that you love. I can make her um, be just as into... Uh, fantasy football as you are. I can make her just as into video games as you are. I can make her just as into Christian apologetics and theology as you are. And I am describing my perfect wife here. <laughs> um, I can I can make her um, do all of the cooking and cleaning for you while you sit on your butt all day and do nothing, and she will never, ever complain. I can make her do all of these things for you. I can make her the perfect woman. And you say... Go on ahead. Go do, do it. And so this robot wife does all of these things. She, she she does all the cooking and cleaning while you sit on your butt all day and do nothing. She never complains. Uh, she is just as into fantasy football as you are. She says, I love you 30 times a day. She, um, 
she she does everything you want her to do. Now, question. Would any of this be meaningful to you at all? No. All of it would be meaningless automata. All of it would be empty, programmed actions. They, they would be meaningless to you. You know, I can tell my Echo Dot to give me a compliment. Amazon has programmed to that. But I, I never use that feature. Why? Because it doesn't mean anything. She's programmed to do that. Now, if I receive a compliment from my mom or my dad or my friends, oh, then it means something because I know that they're actually thinking about my qualities and, and as a person, and, um, and they don't have to give me a compliment. They don't have to say nice things about me or to me. They could do otherwise. Now, likewise, if there was a woman who... I marry and she does all the cooking and cleaning. I certainly wouldn't sit on my butt and do nothing. I would help her. That's the kind of person I am. But let's say I did do, let's say she'd never complained even though I even though I'm a crappy husband. That would be very meaningful to me because she doesn't have to do that. She doesn't have to put up with my um with my poo. Um she can do otherwise. If she says I love you 30 times a day, a real woman, not an android woman, she doesn't have to. She can do otherwise. Um, and she doesn't have to choose to play Super Smash Brothers with me, but if she does, that's great. I am very appreciative of it. A robot woman has no choice. She has to follow her programming. So, determined love is meaningless love. And God wants us to love him genuinely. And God wants us to love each other genuinely. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told us to do that in Scripture. Tim Stratton of Free Thinking Ministries wrote an interesting article on this uh, called Harley Quinn plus the Joker equals true love? Question mark. And in it, he talks about the Joker's relationship with Harley, in response to a lot of comic book fans that have said that uh, Har that they they, they admire the love between Harley Quinn and the Joker, saying that uh, the the love that Harley has for the Joker is is unmatched, and that the love she has for the Joker is the epitome of love. Um, this relationship was portrayed in the movie Suicide Squad. Um, the Harley longs to be with the Joker and seems to be willing to do anything to be in his arms. And she, she demonstrates that she lives for the Joker. She's willing to, to die for the Joker. She's willing to kill for the Joker. She's devoted to him at all costs. But Tim, Tim Stratton says, nah, this is, not, this is not love. This is not love at all. This is what he wrote. I'm quoting from his article uh, on freethinkingministries.com from the article Harley Quinn plus the Joker equals true love, question mark. Stratton wrote, quote, Many guys can only imagine what it would be like to have a beautiful woman willing to do anything to be next to them. Most would love to know what it is like to know the kind of love the Joker knows. Or does the Joker know? Although it has been said that Harley Quinn and the Joker are a great example of true love, I think this relationship is the farthest thing from it. In fact, this relationship makes me sick to my stomach. I contend that this relationship is not true at all. Rather, it is the epitome of evil. 
You see, according to the Suicide Squad movie, the Joker kidnapped and brainwashed Harley against her will. The Joker forced himself upon her and causally determined her to be unable to resist him. Left to Harley's own devices, she would always reject the Joker if given a choice. But the Joker took away any ability from her to choose otherwise. She has been manipulated. She has suffered psychological trauma, and she has been raped against her will, even though the Joker has forced her to think and act in accords with his will. You see, the Joker has no idea what it truly means to be loved. All he has is a kidnapped woman who has no choice now but to follow him. She literally has no ability to do otherwise. She is basically no more than a programmed robot. Now, I'm sure the Joker would have preferred it if Harley Quinn would have freely chosen to love and follow him, as that would have brought him more glory. But since she would not freely choose to be with the Joker, he had to force himself upon her against her will. The Joker simply became irresistible, as she had her ability to resist stolen from her. Now she has no, now she has no ability but to follow him and utter the words, I love Mr. J. This relationship is not the paradigm of love as many comic book junkies imagine. No, true love requires a legitimate and genuine choice on the part of both b parties involved. End quote. And Tim Stratton goes on to say that that both persons must freely choose to enter the romantic relationship for it to count as true love. Otherwise, the most a person could hope for is something akin to Stockholm Syndrome. And Stockholm Syndrome is not love, but psychological trauma. And causing psychological trauma to another person is evil. So, if God wants love for, for him, our love for him and our love for each other to be genuine, and, and we have good reason to believe that, because the Bible says so, then we, be, we, we have good reason to believe that God wanted, God had good reasons for creating a world with free creatures, even though it would introduce evil and suffering. In fact, some apologists were, uh, say it this way: Would it be, wouldn't it be evil for God to remove love from the world? Wouldn't it be evil for God to get rid of love or even the possibility of love? Well, removing free will would do just that. In a world without free will, you wouldn't have love. Oh, you'd have things that look from from the outside to be love. It was from from the outside if you walked into this robot world as a free creature and examined it, you'd find it to be no different from uh from a world of free creatures externally from observing them, but it would all be an illusion. So, Step three of the logical version of the problem of, of evil is not necessarily true. God cannot necessarily create a world of free creatures unless uh, unless he removes free will. But then if he removes free will, he removes the possibility of love. Okay, well, what about step four? Okay, just, just showing that, that one of the premises of the argument is enough to show that this argument is, is debunked. But what about the fourth one? If God is all-loving, then he would prefer a world without suffering. Um, I, I don't think that this is necessarily true either. I mean, it may be the case that God would like a world like that, 
God finds such uh, such a possible world appealing. But when I when I say prefer, God would prefer. I mean that God would choose a world like that. Now it it is possible that God has overriding reasons which might make Him prefer a world more like ours, even though He like even though He likes the idea of a world without suffering or evil. It's possible that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting all of the evils in the world we see. That's at least possible. If you fall down the stairs, it's possible that God had a reason for that. It's possible that God had reasons for giving human beings free will in the first place. As I, In fact, I, I just gave not just a, a possible reason, but a plausible reason. It's possible that God knows that if he permits a certain instance of suffering, a greater good will eventually come out of it. In fact, we all know cases in where we ourselves permit suffering in order to bring about a greater good. C.S. Lewis once remarked, What do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God, because I know he is good? Have they never even been to a dentist? <laughs> Lewis wrote this before the invention of Novocaine, by the way. This illustration shows that many times we permit suffering for some greater good. I will never forget the first time I got a chicken pox shot. My mom took me to the doctor, knowing in advance that he was going to stick me with a needle and it was going to hurt like heck. But she allowed that to bring about a greater good, namely so that I wouldn't get chicken pox. It was a short-term evil that prevented a long-term evil. She had a morally sufficient reason for that. It's possible that God also has morally sufficient reasons uh, for preferring a, a world like ours. Now, the atheist might object that I haven't proven that God can and actually does have good reasons for permitting suffering. All I've done is uh, posit mere possibilities. Okay, granted. But, this is... With regards to this version of the problem of suffering, that's all I need to do. Uh, as William Lane Craig, put, uh, as Doctor William Lane Craig put it in his Defenders class, quote, "What we are just saying is that it might be the case. Remember, the atheist is making a very strong claim here that it is impossible for God and the suffering in the world to coexist. So we do not need to show that it is, in fact, the case that in order to bring about a world in which people always freely do the right thing, uh, that God." would have to make them always do the right thing. As long as it's possible that people have free will, it may be the case that God finds himself confronted with a situation in which any world that involves, say, as much good as this one would also have as much moral evil in it." End quote. So the logical version does not su succeed. And I'm happy to admit that, um, according to Dr. William Lane Craig, uh, I heard him say this at an apologetics conference once, and also in his Defenders class, most philosophers, both Christian and non-Christian, theist and non-theist, don't think the logical version of the problem of evil is any good. They've abandoned it. They say, yes, it is possible for God and evil to coexist. They are not like the irresistible force and the, immo and the immovable object. The problem of evil, the version of the problem of evil that atheists def defend today, mostly, is the probabilistic version of the problem of evil. This version, the, the advocate of the, of the probabilistic version will say that even though it's possible for God and evil to coexist, 
Nevertheless, it's improbable. Certainly, when you think about all of the various evils that have afflicted our world since the dawn of man, it certainly seems improbable that God could have good reasons for permitting all of them. But, while it may seem improbable, is it actually improbable? I have uh, several points of rebuttal uh, in response to the probabilistic version. First is what I call the butterfly effect. Because of the butterfly effect, I don't think we're in a position to judge, one way or another, whether it's probable that God has good reasons for permitting any given instance of suffering. We are not in a position to make such probability judgments given that we humans are limited in time and space and are of finite knowledge. God, on the other hand, is omniscient. He sees the end of history from its beginning, Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10, and he knows what would occur in any given circumstance. The only one who would be in a position to make such probabilities would be God himself. In chapter 7 of his book, On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision, William Lane Craig offers two illustrations to flesh out this point, one from contemporary science and the other from pop culture. The first illustration draws on the concept of chaos theory. Chaos theory says that tiny disturbances in a system can set off a chain reaction that lead to catastrophic consequences. Craig makes reference to a little butterfly fluttering its little wings on a tree branch. People looking at that just think, "Oh, what a pretty butterfly!" But little do they know that 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 the fluttering of this butterfly's wings has set in motion a chain of events which will eventually result in a hurricane blowing over the Atlantic Ocean. No one observing that little butterfly could have possibly predicted such an outcome. The second illustration draws from the movie Sliding Doors which features a woman named Helen, portrayed by actress Gwyneth Paltrow. The movie opens with Helen hurrying down the stairs to catch a train. But as she nears the train, her life splits into two totally different timelines, two totally different lives Helen could live. In one life, in one timeline, she is enormously successful, prosperous, and happy. In the other timeline, she encounters failure, misery, and unhappiness. Whichever timeline becomes a reality, all it depends on a split-second difference of whether or not she is able to pass through the subway doors. Dr. Craig then points out that that difference, whether she makes it through the sliding doors before they close uh, or whether she's blocked, depends on whether a little girl playing with her dolly is either A, snatched away by her father, or B, momentarily blocks Helen's path. Craig says that we have to wonder about the events that led up to that event. Uh, whether, uh, whether A or B occurs is due to whether the little girl and her father were delayed leaving the house that morning because uh, his daughter refused to eat her cereal, or whether the man was just wasn't paying attention to what his daughter was doing because he was preoccupied with something he read in the newspaper. And what led up to that event? 
we don't have a clue. The movie has a twist at the end. In the happy and successful life, Helen is killed. In the life that brought her so much misery, on the other hand, it turns around, it turns around and she finds true love. Now, Dr. William Lane Craig's point in using this movie illustration and chaos theory in chapter 7 of his book On Guard is to say that given our cognitive limitations, we are in no position to judge whether or not God can have a morally sufficient reason for permitting any event. Given, given the dizzying complexity of life and the incomprehensible way in which every event is intertwined with, it, with all other events. It is beyond the mental capacity of a mere man to say with any confidence whatsoever that when some incident of suffering occurs, it is improbable that God had a good reason for allowing it. Dr. Craig writes, quote, Every event that occurs sends a ripple effect through history, such that God's reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries later, and perhaps in another country. Only an all-knowing God could grasp the complexities of directing a world of free creatures toward his envisioned goals. Just think of the innumerable, incalculable events involved at arriving at a single historical event, say, the Allied victory at D-Day. We have no idea what suffering might be involved in order to, for God to achieve some intended purpose through the freely chosen action of human persons, nor should we expect to discern God's reason for permitting suffering. It's hardly surprising that much suffering seems pointless and unnecessary to us, for we are overwhelmed by such complexity." End quote. Given the dizzying complexity and the impossible-to-comprehend way that our choices and events of our lives interlock with one another and affect the course of history, it's impossible for us to be confident in making probability judgments on whether or not something allowed by God was justified. From Helen's perspective, whether or not she, whether or not she got through the sliding doors didn't seem like such a life-changing event to her. But if you're an omniscient being like God, then you know... Whether a certain event happens or not can have radical effects on future events that take place after that. Um, if you want a certain event in the future to occur, you'll have to allow a certain event in the present to occur. If A doesn't happen, then B won't happen. If B doesn't happen, then C won't happen. If C doesn't happen, then D won't happen. If D doesn't happen, then E won't happen. In order to get E to happen, you'll have to allow A through D to happen. A th events A through D may be events of horrible suffering, but event E is a greater good which, which justifies the allowance of events A through D. God knew that if he did not allow suffering A, B, and C, then he could not get greater good E to come about. So, if an atheist comes up to me and asks, why, did, why didn't God strike the 9-11 terrorists down before they could destroy the World Trade Center? Well, why didn't God stop that from happening? I would say, I don't know. God knew the ripple effect that would emerge from that single event. He knew what would happen if he allowed it, and he knew what would happen if he prevented it. Why did God allow 9-11? Why did God allow terrorists to fly into the World Trade Centers, killing thousands of people? I don't know, but God does. 
Perhaps God had many morally sufficient reasons for permitting it to occur. Uh, Maybe he had hundreds and hundreds of morally sufficient reasons that will manifest themselves at different points in time in different people's lives for centuries to come. Maybe there's some event in the 25th century that God needs to bring about, but it wouldn't have come, but it wouldn't come about unless God allowed 9/11 to occur. Science fiction um Time travel enthusiasts know exactly what I'm talking about. Read any science fiction novel or watch any movie about time travel, and you'll see a recurring role, a rec- I mean a recurring rule given to time travelers. Don't tamper with the events of the past. Don't change a single thing. If you do, you could alter the future in ways unimaginable. If you step on a butterfly in 23,000 BC, you could end up being ruled by superintelligent butterflies in 23,000 AD. Okay, that, that's a little bit absurd, but you get the point. Ripple effects. In Back to the Future, the, the birth of the protagonist, Marty McFly, depended on whether or not his peeping Tom of a father got hit by his grandfather's car, resulting in them taking him back into his house to meet his would-be mother, Lorraine, and events that followed that. However, when Marty traveled back to the past, he ended up getting being the one getting hit by a car, that resulted in his would-be mother falling for him instead, instead of George. And Marty and, and had to find some alternative way to get Lorraine and George back together, or else he would be erased from existence. Uh, there's a Star Trek episode called City on the Edge of Forever, and McCoy accidentally changes history so the Nazis win World War II, and as a result, in the present, the Enterprise no longer exists. Every event that occurs sends ripples into the, into the future. So whenever we're faced with some event of suffering, we, are, we have no grounds to say with any sort of confidence that God has no reason for permitting that to occur. And by the way, there are examples of God permitting suffering to bring about greater goods in the Bible. This, uh, this shouldn't be surprising because Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. The first example that comes to mind is the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 to 50. Uh, Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. Joseph was one of Jacob's twelve sons. Joseph's brothers hated him because he was Jacob's favorite child, and and this was obvious from the fact that Jacob constantly showered Joseph with far more affection than his other children. One day, Joseph's brothers finally had enough, and they sold him into slavery. As if being a slave weren't bad in and of itself, Joseph suffered in his slavery as well. Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of trying to rape her, She did this out of spite because she came on to him and he refused to have sex with her. This resulted in Joseph being sent to prison. While Joseph was in prison, he was unable to accurately interpret the dreams of two other... uh, I mean, he was able to accurately interpret the dreams of two other prisoners who were there. One of the prisoners told the Pharaoh about Joseph's amazing ability to accurately interpret dreams once they were released. And Pharaoh was and Pharaoh was in need of of having someone interpret his dreams. Pharaoh let Joseph out of prison, and Joseph told the Pharaoh what his dreams meant. 
Joseph told the Pharaoh that his two dreams meant that there would be seven years of abundant food followed by seven years of horrible famine, and that to prevent widespread starvation, he should store up food during the seven years of abundance so that they could compensate for the lack of food the next seven years. Pharaoh elected Joseph as governor and put him in charge of food storage. As bad as Joseph's experience was, God had a good reason for allowing all of it to happen. If God hadn't let Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, Joseph would never have been able to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. And that would mean that Pharaoh would not have known to save up food during the seven years of abundance. And that would mean that they would they would have no food to eat during the seven years of starvation. And that would mean that thousands of people would have died of starvation probably including the family that God planned to bring the Messiah into the world, Jacob and his brothers, Uh, I mean, and his sons. Now, as Joseph was being carried off to Egypt, he might have been wondering, gosh, why why didn't God stop my brothers from selling me into slavery? Now I'll never see my father and younger brother again. If Joseph had reasoned like an atheist, he would have thought, I can't see any good reason for God to not have intervened to stop my brothers from selling me into slavery, so God must not exist. But, Joseph later realized God's purpose for allowing his suffering. He said, he himself said this when he saw his brothers again years later. He said, quote, you intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. End quote. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. God had a reason for not intervening when Joseph's brothers were sinning against him. But from Joseph's vantage point, it was impossible to discern that reason. If Joseph had judged that it was improbable that God had a good reason for allowing him to be sold into slavery, he would have been wrong. Okay, second point in response to the probabilistic version of the problem of evil is that there are biblical doctrines that make the Christian God, in particular, his existence, more probable with suffering than just some generic theism. And I'm going to list these doctrines. One is that the first doctrine... The first doctrine is that God's purpose for humanity is not happiness in this life, but knowledge of himself. God, God's major purpose is that in light of the sin in the world, he wants to save as many people from our sins as he can. And that is only possible through a knowledge of himself. And there are many, many, many testimonies uh, people, of people who came to Christ. They, they give you their story, uh, they give you their upbringing, they give you where they went in life, and, and so many of them. These people hit rock bottom. Their stories are permeated with evil and suffering. 
and but it culminates <clears throat> it culminates in them coming to Christ. We're in a sin situation. We have all fallen short of God's moral standard. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. And as a holy and just judge, Psalm chapter 11 verse 6, Psalm chapter 9 verses 7 to 8, Psalm chapter 10, God must punish sin. But God is love, according to 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16. And because God is love, God loves the world. John 3, 16. God doesn't want to punish us, but he desires to forgive us. That's why he became incarnate. According, uh, see, first, uh, see John chapter 1, verse 14, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. And God took the punishment on himself at the cross of Calvary. See Romans 5, 8, 1 Peter 3, 18, Isaiah 53. All one needs to do is to repent and receive this gift confessing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. See Romans 10.9, Isaiah 55.7. The primary goal of God in this fallen world is to get as many people saved as God possibly can. God loves you, and God will do everything possible to get you into his kingdom short of coercing you. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. That 2 Peter 3.9, confer 1 Timothy 2.4. Now, God, if God knows if a person would freely be saved if he endured through an immense amount of suffering, then God will allow suffering to enter that person's life for the sake of their eternity. And like I said, you, you don't have to look very hard. Just watch... Just watch EWTN for a few mornings. They always have a clip of someone giving their personal testimony of how they come to Christ. Just, hey, you know what? Get Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Grace. He's got... That book is all about interviews of, of, of God bringing people to faith through suffering. I mean, I could... You could, you could fill a 1,000-page a book of testimonies in which people came to Christ and, well, what do you know, uh, suffering was the road that, that led them there. Lacey Sturm of the, of the band Flyleaf, well, I mean, she used to be of the band Flyleaf, now she's uh, got a solo act. Um, Flyleaf is, run, is the front woman of someone else now, but her testimony, she even wrote a book about it uh, called The Reason. Her testimony of how she came to Christ involved lots of suffering. Um, in, uh, in 2006, Skillet released an album called Comatose. Track 2 is, called, uh, is a song called The Last Night. And by the way, I'm a me mega Skillet fan. Love Skillet. Um, and John Cooper explains the meaning of the song. The song is about a suicidal girl uh, who God speaks to through her through John, and he <clears throat> he said, and I quote, uh, it's a song about a girl who wants to end her own life. She has been told, she has been told ever since she was small by her parents that she was never going to be good enough, never pretty enough, never smart enough, wish she had never been born, can't do anything right, and so on and so forth. And she says, you know what, I hate myself, I hate what I see in the mirror, I, I hate going home at night, I don't have a single reason left to get out of bed tomorrow morning. 
And in this song, I have a chance to tell my friend how special she really is, and I get a chance to tell her that her life is not a mistake. I'm telling you this story not just so you know what this song is about, but because I meet people like her at every single concert that I play. I came here tonight to tell you that there is a God, his name is Jesus Christ, and if you give him one chance, it will be the very last night you spend alone. End quote. John Cooper wrote this song about someone who was suicidal. You come to me with scars on your wrists, is the, the lyric. Um, and this person, it's a true story, this person came to Christ when she was at the end of her rope. Also, statistics show that acceptance of the gospel spreads in places with the most suffering. And I'm getting these statistics from the book Operation World by Patrick Johnstone. This book shows that in countries that have endured the most evil and the most suffering were also countries where the gospel was most widely accepted. Uh, just look at these reports from Johnstone's uh, Operation World. China. It is estimated that 20 million Chinese lost their lives in Mao's cultural revolution. Christians stood firm in what was probably the most widespread and harsh persecution the church has ever experienced. The persecution purified and indigenized the church. Since 1977, the growth of the church in China has had no parallels in history. Researchers estimate that there were 30 to 75 million Christians by 1990. Today, it is estimated that somewhere between 90 and 100 million. Mao Zedong unwittingly became the greatest evangelist in history. El Salvador, the 12-year civil war, earthquakes, and the collapse of the price of coffee, the nation's main export, impoverished the nation. Over 80% live in dire poverty. An astonishing spiritual harvest has been gathered from all strata of society in the midst of the hate and bitterness of war. In 1960, evangelicals were 2.3% of the population, but today they are around 20%. Ethiopia. Ethiopia is in a state of shock. Her population struggles with the trauma of millions of death through repression, famine, and war. Two great waves of violent persecution refined and purified the church, but there were many martyrs. There have been millions coming to Christ. Protestants were fewer than 0.8 of the population in 1960, but by 1990, this may have become 30% of the, of the population. And uh, this is a quote from... Operation World by Patrick Johnstone, as cited in Chapter 7 of William Lane Craig's book, On Guard. Tons more examples like this could be talked about. Uh, when you examine human history, you see that it's been a blood-soaked one. But, however, it has also been a history of the advance of the kingdom of God. And this brings to mind two quotes, one by C.S. Lewis and one by the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. C.S. Lewis put, uh, said this, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, end quote. The Archbishop, uh, uh, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen once said, quote, Sometimes the only way the good Lord can get into some hearts is to break them, end quote. Now, the atheist may object that God is a jerk if he would allow suffering just to get people to bow to him. But consider this. Let's suppose you... Consider that... Let's suppose you wake up in a room somewhere strapped to a chair and consider someone set in front of you. Two buttons. One button would cause you, cause you the worst pain you could imagine for five minutes. 
The other pain, the other button would cause you that same amount of pain for 50 years. You can only be freed from the room if 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 you press one of one button or the other. If you ha- had a true dichotomy of suffering extreme agonizing pain for 5 minutes or suffering that same pain for 50 years, which would you choose? I don't know about you, but I would choose to suffer the pain for five minutes. It's done and over with. Suffering extreme agony for 50 years would be far worse. Now let's suppose you unwittingly go for that button that causes pain for 50 years, but I, I, quick, but I quickly intervene and push the button that causes pain for five. I brought about misery for you in the short term, but in doing so, I prevented it in the long term. Now, this is what, this is similar to God, this is analogous to God using immense suffering in this life to prevent suffering for eternity. Which would you rather do? Would you rather, would you rather experience a short-term hell in this world or a long-term, infinitely long-term hell after your death? Again, I don't know about you, but I choose the other one. That's the first doc. That's the first Christian doctrine that makes God's existence more probable in light of suffering. Is that God's re- purpose for us is not happiness in this life, but knowledge of Himself. Secondly, the Bible teaches that God uses our our trials to build our character. I can point to several. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna quote a few passages here. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7 to 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. From these passages we see that the Bible teaches that God can use suffering to build character. God can mold us into better people through what we suffer. The atheist may scoff, God would really allow a lot of suffering just to develop character? Well, yeah. Well, what kind of character traits could we not obtain in a suffering-free world? I can think of a few. Courage, compassion, forgiveness, self-sacrifice, and charity. I think we can all agree that these are moral virtues. And I think we can all agree that it is better for a person to possess these moral properties than to lack them. Now, here's my question. Is it possible for people to obtain these virtues in the lack of suffering? Can you have courage in the lack of danger? 
No, in order to develop courage, you need chances to be courageous. In order to be compassionate, you need someone suffering so that you can be compassionate. In order to develop the virtue of forgiveness, you need some evils being done to you so that you'll have transgressions to forgive. Want a world where people are charitable? Welcome to a world with poverty. For certain moral values... Uh, for I mean, for certain moral virtues to exist or develop in human beings, there must be some evil and suffering. In fact, each moral virtue has a specific kind of correlation, uh, a specific kind of suffering that correlates with it. Courage correlates with danger. Compassion correlates with suffering. Forgiveness correlates with evil. Self-sacrifice correlates with hardship. Charity correlates with poverty. You would never know what, what courage is unless you had to face danger. You would never know what forgiveness is unless someone had wronged you and gave you a sin to forgive. You would never know what it means to give to the needy if there were no needy people. You can't just snap your fingers and suddenly develop these traits. You can't develop these traits in a puppet. Faith is another virtue that can, that can be enhanced through suffering if we allow it. As we saw in James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5 First uh, Peter chapter one verses five to seven. Now, I know I quote C.S. Lewis a lot, but he has a lot of really good things to say. And with regards to this topic, Lewis said, "Quote to to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God, be, because he because he is what he is. His love must, in the nature of things." be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable, end quote. Because God loves us, he will make us lovable. To make us lovable, he must make us more virtuous. And in that case, and in that, in several cases, will involve allowing us to undergo some suffering. Biblical doctrine number three. The God will put an end to evil and suffering someday. The suffering and evil that we see in this life is not going to last forever. Revelation 21 says uh, in verse 4, God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The, the first heaven and the first earth is going to pass away. There's not going to be any more evil, there's not going to be any more crying or pain or mourning. The former things are, are passed passing away. And in that passage, Jesus says, look, I'm making all things new. Now, the third and final point that I have, okay, first point is that given the ripple effect, we are in no position to judge whether God has a good reason to permit evil or suffering or not. We can't say that that God's existence is improbable in light of suffering because we don't we don't know all the facts. We don't know the ripples that any event is going to produce in the future. We're just not, we're not, in a, we can't make a probability judgment. Second is that we've got three Christian doctrines that make the Christian God, not just some generic God, but the Christian God specifically, the biblical God, the God who inspired the Old and New Testaments, more probable in light of evil and suffering. Now, the third point I made, which I have absolutely no time to get into in this podcast, 
is that the ar- the positive arguments for God's existence tip the scales. Okay, so even if you granted, even if I granted that evil and suffering make God's existence improbable, that would only be the case if evil and that would only be the case if you don't have any evidence for God's existence on the other side. But we got a lot of good evidence for God's existence that we can put on the other side of the scale. The Kalam cosmological argument, the cosmic fine-tuning argument, the local fine-tuning argument, the moral argument, the modal ontological argument, the argument from beauty, the argument, the transcendental argument, the evolutionary argument against naturalism, the free-thinking argument against naturalism. We've got the minimal facts case for Jesus' resurrection. There's good historical evidence that Jesus Christ claimed to be God, died on the cross, and rose from the dead, and you can't have a resurrection in a not in an atheistic universe. So if Jesus rose from the dead, God exists, and we have good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. It's called the minimal facts approach. Of course, you can also get there from a considering the fact that the New Testament is very historically reliable. We got a lot of good evidence on the other side of the scale. Now, I don't have time I don't have time to unpack this in this podcast episode, but I have unpacked uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, the cosmic fine-tuning argument, the local fine-tuning argument, the moral argument, and the ontological argument in the first several episodes of this podcast. I also talk about all of these arguments in my book, The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. For the God of Christianity. The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity. You can get this book in paperback or Kindle formats by going to Amazon.com. So, I would say that in light of the, the good arguments for God's existence... It just, it overwhelmingly tips the scales in favor of God's existence being probable. So that's my final response to the probabilistic version of the problem of evil. Now what about the emotional problem of evil? Well, the emotional problem of evil, unfortunately, I don't have time to get into that. But this is a this is less of a philosophical slash theological approach, and it's more of a, a pastoral approach. And if I may say something uh, in the the time I have remaining um, to those who struggle with God as not as a as a philosophical puzzle but as an e- an emotional thing, sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes He calms His child. Uh, when you go through terrible suffering in this life, you shouldn't spurn God. Instead, you should do just the opposite. You should turn to him for comfort and support. The Bible says that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm chapter 147 verse 3. The Bible says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm chapter 34 verse 18. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28 Psalm chapter 32 verse 7 says, "You are my hiding place. 
you, meaning God. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. These Bible passages tell us that when times of suffering come, God is there for us. He is our hiding place, Psalm 32.7. He will heal our broken hearts and bind up our wounds, Psalm 147, verse 3. He will give us rest if we come to him, Matthew 11.28. If you've turned your back on God because of some tragedy that has entered your life, I implore you to return to him now. Ask him to heal your broken heart. Ask him to help you cope with whatever it is you're dealing with. Ask him to help you to forgive him. Of course, I'm not implying that God has actually done anything wrong. When I say, ask him to help you forgive him, I simply mean to help you stop resenting him. You may not be able to stop begrudging God on your own power, but God can help you with that. He can help you stop resenting him. Psalm chapter 121 verses 1 to 2 says, I lift my eyes up to the mountain. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And Matthew 19.26 says that while some things are impossible with men, all things are possible with God. If there's anyone who can help you stop being mad at God, it's God. Who will you be like? Will you be like Job's wife, who thought that Job should curse God on account of his suffering? Job chapter 2 verse 9. Or will you be like Martha, who ran to Jesus during her time of mourning? John chapter 11, verse 20. God gave you free will. It's up to you how you respond to your circumstances. The better thing to do would be to run to Jesus, to fall at his feet and say, Lord, my heart is broken. Heal me. Jesus stands with arms wide open saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. In the end... Jesus is the answer to the problem of, of evil. The problem of evil is not a successful argument against the existence of God. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. If you want to support this podcast and Cerebral Faith Ministries as a whole, go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. Thank you for listening. God bless you, and I will see you next time.